Amen. All right, take a Bible. Our passage tonight is 2 Samuel 6. That's going to be home base. We're going to look at a lot of other stuff. So you're going to need to have your Bible handy. We're going to flip around. But 2 Samuel 6 is where we're going to camp. Um, a couple of months ago, somebody turned me on to an author named Leif Anger. And he's written three fiction books, and I read them and loved them and got on Amazon to see what else he had. And that was all he had, but there was a book by a guy named Lynn Inger, and I think it's Leaf's older brother, might be his dad, but I think older brother. And uh, the book is called High Divide, so I bought it and I read it. It is historical fiction, it is Western, and it is mystery, all rolled into one. It is a really, really great book. It's set in Minnesota in the 1800s. The Ingers are from Minnesota, and so all their books are sort of set up in there. You feel cold when you read their books. All the way through it, you just think, I can feel how cold it is up there. And uh, this is a great book. It's about the Pope family. Dad's name is Ulysses. Mom is Greta, and they have two sons, Eli and Danny. And it's a great story, uh, very well written, and the specifics of the plot are not why I mention it to you. Here's why I mention it to you. Uh, I told you it was part mystery. As you read through the book, there's all sorts of questions that are just sort of unanswered, and they just are out there hanging and you're wondering. Sometimes you read a book, and you get to the end, and you still have questions hanging out there. One of the reasons I love this book is you got to the end and there was a nice, neat bow on all of it. All your questions were answered. There were no mysteries at the end of the book. Everything was in its place. And you just got to the last page and you felt like you could take a big sigh and, and breathe a sigh of relief and just say, ah, what a great story. You took me on this journey. You left all these questions hanging in the air and then you resolved all of them by the time the, the story was over. Tonight... We're looking at 2 Samuel 6, uh, one of the most interesting episodes from David's life. And we're going to get to the end of it, and we're still going to have some questions. There's still going to be some things sort of hanging in your mind. Maybe we can lean a direction. Maybe we can make some educated guesses, but there's just some stuff uh, out there. That's not bad storytelling, that's just a different kind of storytelling than the kind that wraps everything up nice and neat at the end. And if you've read much of the Bible, you know that there are a lot of stories in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where you read through the story and you get to the end and you say, yeah, but what about this? Why did that happen? What was going on there? It's not bad storytelling. It's not that the ancient Jews didn't know how to tell a good story. They knew how to tell a really, really good story. And the way that they tell stories, often in the Old Testament, is they tell you just what you need to know, and they don't answer every question that you might have. And because they don't answer every question, you try to get inside the story. It's almost as if you sort of climb onto the, into the pages of the Scripture and you say, well, why did this happen and what was going on here and why didn't he explain this? And the funny thing happens. As you try to get into the story, the story gets into you. Some scholars call these types of stories in the Old Testament Jewish meditation literature. 
meaning. They leave out certain details so that you slow down and stop and think about it. And in thinking about it and in meditating on the story, the story actually begins to transform you from the inside out. I certainly hope that's true tonight. We're talking about David. We're talking about a man named Uzzah. And we're talking about something called the Ark of the Covenant. And so we'll try to set the stage here before we jump in. Peterson says, we arrive at an odd episode in the David story. There are details here that none of us seems to be able to account for satisfactorily, and yet the thrust and the meaning of the story are blazingly obvious. One of my favorite authors of all time is a guy named R.C. Sproul, and I have not quoted him so far in this study. He has not written a book specifically on David. He has written a book called The Holiness of God. If you like to read books on theology, that has to be on your shelf. This is one that you've got to read. If you don't like to read books on theology, you should get this one and put it on your shelf. And you will maybe start to like reading books on theology. It is a phenomenal book. I've read it multiple times. We've read it together as a staff and, and our elders here at the church. Um, one of the chapters talks about Uzzah. And a few weeks ago, in our Sunday morning series, as we talked about the holiness of God, I so badly wanted to center it on this story about Uzzah. But I knew David was coming on Wednesday nights, and I said, I don't want to double dip those Wednesday night saints for showing up. I don't want them to show up and say, we've already heard this message. So I refrained, and we went elsewhere. But it's a phenomenal book. It's a great chapter about Uzzah, and this is how Sproul sets the stage. When David ascended to the kingship of Israel, he moved quickly to consolidate his kingdom conferred with his officers and military commanders, he decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant, Israel's most sacred vessel, out of, quote-unquote, retirement and back to a central place. The Ark had been captured by the Philistines, and it was said that in that fateful day, the glory had departed from Israel. When the sacred Ark was captured, Israel's greatest treasure was stolen and carried off to the pagan temple of Dagon. When the ark returned, which in itself is a great story, it was placed in safekeeping awaiting the appropriate time for its public restoration to a position of prominence in the midst of the nation. Finally, the hour came and David wanted the glory back. So that's where we pick up tonight. David, Uzzah, and the ark. Before we jump into 2 Samuel, I just want to talk about the ark for some of you, this is basic review. You've been hearing this sort of stuff since you were in third grade Sunday school. But we need a baseline to operate off of as we jump into this story. So let's talk about the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant was designed by God to serve as the throne of God. God designed it. The people of Israel did not get together and simply say, hey, we need an Ark of the Covenant. Rather, God came to the people through Moses and said, you're going to build an ark, and this is how you're going to build it. God designed it, and the, the purpose, the intention of it is that it would serve as God's throne. So take your Bible, hold your spot, home base, 2 Samuel 6, flip towards the very beginning, Exodus chapter 25, second book of the Bible, Exodus 25, we'll just read a few verses here. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 10. 
God speaking. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side of it. Excuse me. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony, that is the law, the Ten Commandments, that I shall give you. So I'll just put a few pictures up of potentially what different people think this thing looked like. I can tell you that as a child, I always pictured something roughly the size of a coffin. Just long and big and bulky. It was not that big. We're talking four feet long, two feet wide, two feet tall, made of acacia wood, covered with gold inside and out. You can see the idea where there's rings sort of on the bottom or on the side, and there's poles that run through the side. This allowed the priests, the Levites who carried it, to move it, to transport it without actually touching the ark itself. And on the top, there's further instructions given that there were to be two cherubim on the top facing each other, head bowed, wings touching somewhere in the middle. And the whole thing was sort of support, supposed to function as a, a throne of sorts for the, the presence of God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Inside of it originally was one thing. Eventually there were three things in the ark. And I just want you to think about these three things in the ark. The Ten Commandments were in the ark. A jar of manna was in the ark. And Aaron's staff that budded was in the ark. Three items located in the ark. The only time anyone ever really got close to this thing was once a year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go in, you can read in Leviticus about all the instructions for the Day of Atonement, and he would go in to make atonement, blood atonement for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And he would sprinkle the blood of these sacrifices on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Legend says, tradition says, that he would go in with a rope tied around his leg in case the glory of the Lord burst out and consumed him because of some sin in his life no one would have to go in after him. They could just watch the clock and at some point say, oh, Johnny did not make it, drag him out. And they would pull the rope out and out he would come. The contents, the contents of the ark reminded God's people that he commanded them, that he provided for them, and that he saved them. The stuff that was kept in the ark was not just a random collection of things. This is not your junk drawer at home. Any of you have a junk drawer at home? I cleaned ours out this last week. I just took it out, and I just looked at the thing, and I said, this is ridiculous. Just throw it all out. It's a bunch of garbage. We'll start over. We're a week in. It's completely full. Just junk. You know, it comes out of nowhere. This was not the junk drawer. These were really important items. And they reminded the people that God commanded them, the Ten Commandments. I've given you a law to follow. Reminded that God provided for them, 
the manna, right? He's meeting your needs and reminding them that God saved them. All of these objects ended up in the ark sort of came out of this exodus period where God saved his people. All of those things also reminded the people of their sin. The Ten Commandments that they had broken. The manna that God gave them when they grumbled. Aaron's staff that budded, if you go back and look at the story, when there was a rebellion in a group of people angry about who God had put in charge of the nation. All reminders of sin. And the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would come in and sprinkle blood on the top of this throne, reminding the people, you need a sacrifice. You need a substitute. You cannot come into the presence of a holy God because you are sinful people. They kept it in the Holy of Holies, and it was a symbol of God's presence with the people. This is why when the Philistines ended up with the ark, it was said that the glory had departed from Israel. It was as if God's presence was no longer with them. Here's a layout of the tabernacle, just so you get the idea. You always entered from the east, moving to the west, and you went by an altar, and then you went by a big laver where you would watch. That was out in the courtyard. And you went into the holy place, this middle area, and there's a curtain on the front end and a curtain on the back end, and you would go in, there would be a table with bread, there would be a large sort of uh, lamp stand, candle stand, on the opposite side there was an altar of incense, and if you went through the back curtain, there was the Ark of the Covenant. Here's what's interesting. You can go all throughout the ancient Near East, and you can find ruins of temples laid out almost exactly just like that. It's not like when God told them to build a tabernacle and then a temple that he just pulled something out of thin air. People had temples laid out basically like this for all sorts of gods and goddesses. There's one big difference. In all the other pagan temples, when you enter into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, that's where the idol sat. That's where the deity was set up. When you entered into the Holy of Holies that the Hebrews had set up, you walk in and you see the throne and there is no idol. They didn't go in and worship the ark. They worshiped the God who resided and who sat on the ark. He didn't have a statue. He didn't have an idol. He didn't have a carving or a representation or anything of the sort. So there was a major difference here. The ark itself was not magical, okay? Think Indiana Jones and they crack this thing open and lightning starts zapping people and crazy stuff like that. It's not, a, it's not a magical object. And when Israel treated it like it was magic, that's when they lost it. They took the thing and they said, hey, this is like a super duper good luck charm. We carry this thing. We can't lose in battle. Carry it into battle. They lost The Philistines took it, and God took care of the ark himself. And the lesson in that for the Hebrews was, you cannot use God for your own agenda. That's not how it works. He sets the agenda, and you can get on board with it, but he will not be used by human beings for their own agendas. Churches forget that sometimes. Pastors. Forget that. 
sometimes. Nonprofit ministries that begin with the greatest of, of intentions, forget that. Uh, all, of, all of these folks sometimes begin to think that they can use God for their own purposes, for their own agendas. Political parties make this mistake. Politicians make this mistake. They think they can use the deity for their own purpose, for their own agenda. The lesson here is that God will not be used. He will not be manipulated. You're not going to be backed into a corner. You're not going to take this object that was sacred and holy and use it to get God to do whatever you want him to do. That is not how God operates. So we just need to file that away in our minds. Now let's talk about David. David had a plan to move the ark. He wanted to move the ark to Jerusalem, and his plan resulted in the death of Uzzah. The death of Uzzah. And this is where we want to read, 2 Samuel 6. We'll begin in verse 1. We'll go down to verse 11. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So it had been stolen by the Philistines. They had returned it, and they had just sort of set it aside in a guy's house. They didn't really know what to do with the thing. So just sort of been there in a holding pattern. David says, we're going to get it. We're bringing it to Jerusalem. Verse 3, they carried the ark of God on a new cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So you got a guy named Abinadab. He's been holding on to the ark. He has two sons, Uzzah and Ahio, and they've been sort of the quote-unquote caretakers while we're waiting for something to happen. Verse 5, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. That's a strange story. Some scholars will tell you that Uzzah, as he walked beside the ark, saw the oxen stumble and the cart begin to tip and the ark coming down, 
that Uzzah reaches out his hand and he touches the ark and he knew that he wasn't supposed to do that. We'll get to that here in a minute. And it scared him so badly when he actually touched it, he just had a heart attack and he dropped dead and he died on the spot. He panicked. Literally, he was scared to death. And everyone looked around and saw that and said, oh, God killed him. Really, he just had a heart attack. Was that what the text said? You got to listen carefully to what it says. Uzzah put out his hand, verse 6, to the ark of God. He took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died. He died beside the ark of God. The text says God was angry with him. And in this particular story, it doesn't exactly tell you why. We can piece some of that together, but in this story, you're sort of just left wondering, why did you do that? Why did you kill the guy who was trying to keep the most holy object in Israel from falling into the dirt or falling into the mud? text doesn't really tell us. We can piece it together. Peterson describes what we've got to do like this. He said, sometimes the Bible raises more questions than it answers. When a storyteller leaves gaps in the story, there's an implicit invitation for us to fill in the blanks. We are not free, not free, underline not free, to insert whatever suits our fancy. Our imaginations must work within the constraints of the context. You've got to think about what's going on immediately in the passage. You've got to think about the wider biblical context. So the question is, why did God strike Uzzah down? We're going to try to answer that. Number one, the ark had been housed with Abinadab at kiriath Jerem. Philistines sent it back. That's where it ended up. You can go to the Holy Lands today. If you travel over there, there is a French monastery that has been built, Our Lady of the Ark, on the site that archaeologists, historians, geographers believe is where this man lived. And you can see it up on the hill. That's where Abinadab lived. And there's settlement been built up around it and a monastery on the top. Tradition says that's where it was kept. The ark, think about this. Now we're moving out in context a little bit. It was supposed to be carried by the Levites, specifically the Kohathites, and no one was supposed to look at the ark supposed to be carried, not by anybody, not by two guys who just had it in their living room for the last several months, but by the Levites, and within the Levites, the Kohathites, and carried a specific way, not on a cart, but with the poles. Don't take the poles out. Leave the poles in there so you can carry it. No one was supposed to look at it. Look at Numbers chapter 4. We're not going to read all of these instructions. I just want you to see some of what is in the book of Numbers. In my personal Bible reading, I just came through the book of Numbers, and there's some stuff in Numbers that is as dry as beef jerky. Like, you just think, why am I reading these names and these numbers? They call it the book of Numbers for a reason, and some of the repetition. But you need to read it. It's important. And there's things in there that you might read in your quiet time and say, eh, boring, give me something exciting. You get to Uzzah and God's killing people and you say, now this is exciting. But if you haven't read Numbers, you don't have a clue what's going on. 
Numbers chapter 4, just look at a few verses. Verse 4, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. The sons of this guy named Kohath are in charge of the most holy things that stay in the tent of meeting in the tabernacle. They're the guys who carry it around when it moves from place to place. People from Judah, don't touch it. The Danites, don't even think about it. Zebulun, not a chance. Only the Levites, and within the Levites, the Kohathites. Look at verse 15. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the things, uh, all the... Uh, all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they what? Die. It's pretty clear. You might be skipping over parts of numbers because you're bored with some of it, but God says it right there. The Kohathites are going to carry it, but they're not going to touch it. That means you need the rings and you need the poles and you need to do it exactly like God has told you to do it. The consequence is you might die. Look at verse 20. It says, They shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment. Not for a moment, lest they die. We had a birthday in our house this last week. Clayton turned five. And for the last couple of days, he had three presents sitting in the living room. And all day, every day, it was, can I open one of those presents, please? Can I look inside? I just want to peek. I just want to see. I just want to, I just want to glimpse. The day one of them came in a, a UPS box, he was so insistent that he get a peek. I said, fine, I'm going to give you one second. Are you ready? It was blue. What is it? Oh, I saw blue in there. I mean, that's human nature. You don't know what's in there. You want to see it. And God knows human nature, and he says to these people, look, don't touch it. These guys are going to carry it, but they're not going to touch it. And don't look at it. You don't just go, you don't just waltz into the holy of holies to take a look at things. Don't do it. And God says the consequence, if you do it, is that you might die. What's going on in 2 Samuel 6? Well... They take the ark and they put it on a cart. A new cart. Not an old cart. We would never do that. It's a big deal. We're going to get a new cart. Brand new. Fresh off the lot. Zero miles. Never been used. And uh, we're going to have a parade. At least 30,000 people in this parade. And the text doesn't really tell you if it was covered or if it was not covered, but I imagine 30,000 people and you got a parade and the whole point is to move the ark to Jerusalem, I bet they're looking for longer than a moment. So it's on a cart and uh, they're looking. And I'm sure in David's mind and everyone's mind, it made a lot of sense. You know how long it takes to walk the distance from where it was Abinadab's house to Jerusalem, it's a long way. Arms get tired. Priests aren't used to that. You've got to build up to that sort, of, that sort of hike. Can't just jump into it. The cart will be faster. We can tie it down. We can keep it secure. We'll move quickly. It'll give everyone a good vantage point. Here's what's happened in 2 Samuel 6. 
pragmatism has taken the place of obedience. What God's people thought seemed like a good idea and what might work better has taken the place of just doing what God says to do. Churches do this all the time. And no church, ours included, is immune from the temptation. You hear churches sometimes that will say things like, we want to be the church that will do whatever it takes to reach people. Why don't you just say, we want to be the church that will do whatever it takes to be obedient. We want to do what God says to do. We're not going to sell our souls to pragmatism. We want to be as obedient to God as possible. These guys have got it completely flipped. David has replaced obedience with efficiency. He's copied the Philistines. When the Philistines sent the ark back, they put it on a cart. The pagans used a cart. Now David is using a cart. There's no mention here of David inquiring of the Lord. We've, we've gone through on some of these Wednesday nights and we've just bullet-pointed all these passages. David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. What should I do? How should we do it? When should we go? Tell me what to do. No mention of that here. Just David saying, go get a cart. Make sure it's new. It's got to be nice. Want the float in the parade to look really pretty. It's pragmatism and it's efficiency. Swindoll says this, never do what's wrong. Never. Do nothing until it's right then do it with all your might. I like that quote. When the oxen stumbled, Uzzah tried to steady the ark, and the Lord struck him dead. Just be really clear. I know we've read it. We've talked about it. Let's be very, very clear about what happened to Uzzah. He reached out. He touched it, and the Lord was angry at Uzzah, and he struck him dead. Stories like this bother people. They make people uncomfortable. Stories like the flood, where God brings judgment on the world. Stories like Sodom and Gomorrah, where God destroys an entire city. Stories, not just Old Testament, but stories like uh, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, who lie in church and God just kills them immediately on the spot. Those sorts of stories make us uncomfortable. And Sproul recognizes that. He says this, Surely Uzzah's reaction was instinctive. He did what any pious Jew would do to keep the ark from falling into the mud. It wasn't a premeditated act of defiance toward God. It was a reflex action. From our vantage point, it seems like an act of heroism. We think Uzzah should have heard the voice of God shouting down from heaven crying, Thank you, Uzzah! And instead, the text says God's angry with him and he strikes him down. That bothers people. Sometimes in the Bible, when you come to a story like that that sort of bothers you and you back up and you say, man, that doesn't seem right. Sometimes you just need to think for a minute. Okay, I'll give you an example. The story of Samson. How many times you hear that story when you were a child growing up? We love telling the story of Samson. You get to the part in Samson's life where he finally lets the cat out of the bag and uh, Delilah and the Philistines cut his hair and God says, that's it, no more muscles for you, no more strength for you. And they come in and they take him and they arrest him and they gouge his eyes out and you, you come away and you just say, really, just he got a haircut? That's it? And you, you put him through all of that? 
just because he got a haircut doesn't seem fair. But if you stop and think about it, God's been pretty patient with Samson. Samson was to be a Nazarite from birth. That meant don't ever cut your hair, don't drink alcohol, and don't touch anything dead. Well, he's been eating honey out of a lion carcass, so he's touching dead things. The text says he's been hanging out in vineyards, going out of his way to travel through vineyards. I don't think it was to look at the scenery. And when he finally breaks the third part of his Nazarite vow, God finally says, that's it. But he's been patient with Samson. Think about this story. By the time you get to God striking us a dead, they've made a complete mockery of Numbers chapter 4. Goethites are supposed to carry it. You're not supposed to put it on an ark. You're supposed to walk with it and use the poles, a four-man team. And you are not supposed to look at it, even for a moment. And they've been warned, if you do the opposite of those things, you might die. The world continues, brings us back into line. He says, Uzzah assumed his hand was less polluted than the earth. It wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark, it was the touch of man. The earth is an obedient creature, does what God tells it to do. Brings forth its yield in its season, obeys the laws of nature that God has established. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason. Uzzah was not an innocent man. He was not punished without a warning. He was not punished without violating a law. There was no caprice in, his, in this act of divine judgment. There was nothing arbitrary or whimsical about what God did in that moment. But there was something unusual about it. God is indeed long-suffering, patient, slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. This is no different than the teacher who gives an extension on a paper. You can have another day, have another two days, you can have another three days. You can do some extra credit. Come for tutoring and get some bonus points. You can do all of these things. And then at the end of the course, they give a final and somebody fails. And that person who fails says, well, what about all my extra credit and bonus and makeup and correct my mistakes? And the teacher says, no, that's it. And the student says, well, that's not fair. It's the very standard of fairness. The other situations were not fair. That situation is fair. Fair for Uzzah. God will not be used. He will not be manipulated. Peterson reminds us uh, in a humorous way that God is dangerous. He says, sometimes I think all religious sites should be posted with signs reading, Beware the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend God are dangerous. Maybe we should add that. We have a no open carry sign at all of our doors. Maybe we should add a Beware the God. We talked about this recently on a Sunday morning. We talked about the idea that God is a good God. He's not safe. He's not tame. He's not controllable. He's certainly good, but we can't domesticate him. Licato says Uzzah's tragedy teaches us this. God comes on his own terms.
And we might add to that that God sets the terms in how we come to Him. Again, churches tend to forget this. Churches tend to think, well, I mean, let's be creative. Let's be innovative. We've been singing and praying and preaching for thousands of years. Let's, uh, I don't, let's spice it up a little bit. You know, let's add some of this and a little bit of that. And this would be exciting. And this might get people to come in. Pragmatically, it might work to get people in the building rather than saying, how can we be obedient to the Lord? And how can we approach the Lord as He has told us to approach Him? Here's the most shocking part of the story. Look, it's a little bit shocking when God bursts out and kills Uzzah. It's a little bit shocking. For some people, a lot, but really, if you think about it, it's a little shocking. Here's what's really shocking in the story. David was angry with the Lord, and he canceled the parade. David throws a temper tantrum about the whole thing. He's gone to a lot of trouble to get everyone together, bought a new cart, had everything ready. God kills Uzzah, and David is angry about it. 2 Samuel 6, 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. He was angry at the Lord. Verse 9, he was afraid of the Lord, not in a good way, but in a bad way, so that he said, how can, how can the ark of God come to me? That's a polite way of David saying, I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. That's shocking. If that's how God's going to operate, I'm going to go to all this trouble to throw a parade, bring the ark in. We want to put God at the center of our lives. And he's going to burst out and kill Uzzah for saving the ark from the mud. David is essentially saying, don't you dare bring that thing here. I don't want anything to do with it. He's fearful and he's angry. He's asking all the wrong questions. He's fixated on the question, why did God kill Uzzah? He's not really thinking about the question, why did God let the rest of us live? The rest of them were complicit in the whole thing. They were looking at it. They were watching it on the cart. David had given the orders and the instruction. All he can think about is, why did God give Uzzah justice? Instead, he should be asking himself, why did God not kill the rest of us? Why did he let us live? Uzzah approaches casually. He's got the ark in a house. Put it on a cart. They're treating it as an ordinary object. There's no preparation for what they're about to do. I wonder if that's how you and I approach worship. Casually. With no preparation. And how many people spend six days of the week giving little to no thought of God in their daily lives. You know, you get busy. You got birthday presents to open and kids to hold to school and grandkids to watch them play soccer and you got work and you got to sleep and hey, calendar fills up pretty quick. Week goes by fast. Have you given much thought to the Lord during the week? Or are you sort of doing it as a style and just showing up and putting in an appearance on your own terms, with your own agenda. 
Three months go by. This is one of the parts of the story where I really just want to know what was going on for three months. He was angry and he was afraid when we left off. We pick up three months later after three-month hiatus, David brings the ark into Jerusalem. We'll read it briefly here in 2 Samuel. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, not anger, not fear, with rejoicing. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Leave off right there. Flip over to the right just a few pages and find First Chronicles 15. We've spent most of our time in First and Second Samuel. Some of these stories show up in Chronicles, and this is one time that it's interesting to, to notice the parallel. Here's what I want you to see in, in 1 Chronicles 15. David's second attempt with the ark was marked by these things, reverence, obedience, and joy. Look, the first time they had a great parade lined up, and they had a brand new cart The second time, when they bring the ark in, it's reverent, it's obedient, and it's joyful. Just a few things I want you to see. 1 Chronicles 15, look at verse 2. David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. Why did he say that? For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. It's a good start. We don't just have two guys who had the ark in their living room bringing it into town. David's actually saying, well, maybe we should do it the way God said to do it. Maybe we need to get the Levites involved here. Look at verse 12. David said to them, you're the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. You better set yourself apart for this. This is no common task that you're about to jump into. This is not hauling sandbags. This is hauling the ark. So you need to think about this. You need to consecrate yourself. Look at verse 13. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. He's confessing his sin. He's saying, look, God was angry last time and it, it wasn't his fault, it was our fault. We didn't follow the rules. We didn't do what he said. God was in the right, and we were in the wrong. Look, in those three months, something has happened in David's heart. We leave off. He's angry, and he's terrified, and he says, I don't want anything to do with it. Now he's saying, we're going to make another run at it, but you're going to consecrate yourselves, and only the Levites are going to touch it. And look, last time we didn't follow the rule, and that's on us. Confessing sin. Look at verse 26. It says, because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. They're carrying it. The Levites are carrying it. It's not on a cart. It's not on a new cart. It's not on an old cart. There's no carts. They're going to carry it like God told them to do. 
Verse 25, David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. With rejoicing. The text says, we read it in 2 Samuel, every six steps they sacrificed. You know roughly how far it was from where they left it at Obed-Edom's to where they took it? About 10 miles. Levites are holding it. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop. Nobody move. Sacrifice. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop. We're not going to go seven steps. We're not even going to go a full length without stopping to acknowledge our sin and to acknowledge that we need a sacrifice to be killed for our transgressions. David, in this three-month period, however it happened, when you get to heaven, you can ask him. You can say, David, the three months, what happened? Who talked to you? What did you read in your quiet time? Was it numbers? Did you come to numbers in your quiet time? You can ask him. David is now focused on God's holiness. When you focus on God's holiness, it reveals your sinfulness. And David's heart is no longer in the camp of saying, how can we do this most efficiently? He's now in the camp of saying, how can we do this most obediently? It's entirely, entirely different. But it's not all different. Flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Is a strange part of the story. Read a few more verses here. 2 Samuel 6, 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. You wonder why she wasn't out participating in some way. She was inside looking out, observing. She wasn't participating, she was observing. She sees David dancing, and she despises David. She hates David in her heart. Earlier, it was David who was angry with the Lord. Now it's David's wife, Michael, who is hateful and angry towards him. They brought the ark of the Lord. They set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched. He offered burnt offerings, peace offerings before the Lord. When he had finished the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, dispersed, excuse me, distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. David returned to bless his household, But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. Now she comes out. She's inside during the celebration. Everyone's having a potluck. Everyone goes home, and she finally comes out, and she says, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. 
I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. This is one of those places you wonder what was going on. You'd like a few more details. Why was she so mad? What was she upset about? Maybe she and David had just grown apart. That happens when your husband spends years, years on the run and you're separated from him. Maybe she didn't worship Yahweh. Would not be unthinkable for one of Saul's children to just turn their back on Yahweh and worship a different god or goddess. Maybe she, she wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh. It would explain why she didn't participate in the, the bringing the ark in. Maybe she was grieving Saul. It's not been that long since her dad was killed in battle. Maybe she missed her other husband. Remember, she had another husband. It's given to David in marriage. David goes on the run. She gets a second husband. Then when David comes back and he's king, he sends for her and Abner brings her and the husband is following, crying, and Abner says, hey, buddy, you better go home. And maybe she was missing that husband. Maybe, this is a little bit of sanctified speculation, maybe she's still angry and the three months hasn't been long enough for her. Maybe she views God as a social amenity and a political tool that can help her or her family's line, rather than a God to be submitted to and obeyed and feared. Peterson takes that angle and he says this, Michael would have been comfortable walking beside the ark with Uzzah, stately, proper, careful, dead. Knows. It's a strange ending to the story. This is where you end up. They try to bring the ark the first time. Uzzah touches it to keep it from the mud, and God kills him. Second time, they bring the ark in, and David dances in front of it in his underwear, and he lives. You compare the two, and you think, what a strange comparison. One guy touches it to keep it out of the mud. He's killed. One guy dancing, quite frankly, making a fool of himself, and he lives. Licato says this, Scripture doesn't portray David dancing at any other time. He did no death dance over Goliath. He never scooted the boot among Philistines. He didn't inaugurate his term as king with a waltz or Dedicate Jerusalem with a ballroom swirl. But when God came to town, he couldn't sit still. Maybe God wonders how we do. The issue when you come to the end of the chapter and you think about this episode from David's life is how are you going to approach the Lord? How are you going to seek to come into his presence to worship him? Are you going to come on your terms? Or are you going to come on his terms? going to come with your own agenda or you're going to come seeking his agenda you see the difference in how it played out between David and Uzzah